Hello and welcome to the Financial Classroom with Will, Tim, and Jules, where three friends believe that the American dream is built by living within your means. Listen as we discuss how to build wealth, live frugally, and attack life with a financial plan. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Financial Classroom. You're listening to episode 28. Before we jump into what we're going to talk about, who our guest is, if you want to just hop onto Apple Store and iTunes and leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It would greatly help us out in terms of reaching more audience with this podcast and continue to do what we love. Yeah, you know, the reviews is kind of a way for our listeners to, to speak to us and tell us how they feel about it. And it gives us encouragement to keep going too. You know, we're not just looking for ratings, but you know, it's kind of like a thank you card in a way. And I just wanted to read this one that came up because it was really nice to hear. So helpful, Julie and the guys. Hard work pays off. And I really want to thank you all for the advice and all the stories I've been hearing from your podcast. It has really helped me to save and be smart about my money. So thank you so much. I set 2021 as my year to be better with my personal finances. And this podcast has helped me so much. Um, awesome. So yeah, we, we really appreciate that, Rockstar555. Yeah, thank you so much for all your support. So for today's episode, we're going to be interviewing, actually, Jules and I are going to be interviewing Will and Jackson, and just talking a little bit about mutual funds, ETFs, what the difference is, and just kind of how you can create your own plan of how you're going to invest in those funds, maybe some indicators of what a good mutual fund or ETF is. And it's some really practical information that we're giving to you guys. So definitely stay tuned. Yeah. So if you want to check out Jackson, listen to episode four and five, he was on before too. It was fun answering questions and it's more, I feel like we get a lot of people in our personal life too, who ask, well, how do you invest? What do you invest in? And like, how do you understand investing? And so this is kind of like the DIY in a way and uh, to learn about the basics of what to look for and how to invest and what are the things to watch for and warning signs and certain things to succeed in terms of investing and how to diversify. And we touched on all that in this episode. Yeah. So without further ado, check out this episode and hope you guys enjoy. Hey everyone, we're here today talking with Jackson, who is actually one of our first guests here on the Financial Classroom podcast. Uh, He did a couple episodes for us about investing and about retirement. And today we're going to be interviewing him. Jackson is an investment advisor or wealth management advisor, I believe is the title, at Asante Wealth Management. And today we'll be interviewing both him and Will discussing investments, kind of how to invest yourself, DIY, talking about ETFs and what kinds of indicators you can look at to make good choices. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So before we get started, um, we wanted to first ask the question for our listeners who have no idea in regards to investing is, like, where do you start? We know we've heard of RSPs before, we've heard of mutual funds before, but can you explain to us like what's an RSP, a TFSA, a Lira, and then how mutual funds fit into that or ETFs? Can you kind of give us a, a general perspective on that? So 
this is the basic, the most basic concept. I think we talked about it a little bit when Jackson came on in, um, I don't remember what episode it was, but RSP, Register Retirement Savings Plan. When you put money in, you get to deduct income from your total income bracket. So you get to pay less taxes at the end of the year and get a bigger return at the end of the year. Tax-free savings account, which should really be named tax-free investment account, I feel like. So people actually invest in it instead of leaving it in a high interest savings account, collecting 0.0000005% interest. <laughs> um, so anything within the tax-free savings account, this is for Canadians, grown is all tax-free. So if you are 18 years old right now and you have $6,000 for the year of 2021 and you start investing in it, and every single year you max out your TFSA, you have a 30, 40, 50 year window to let it grow. So your contribution that you make every single year could eventually become millions of dollars. And that's all going to be tax free when you pull it out. So I can't stress enough to put it in a tax free saving account. And I'll just break down the other one that a lot of people know is the RESP, which is the register education saving plan, which for once you have a kid down the road, you put it in, I think up to $2,500 a year, and then the government will match up to $500. And usually you max to the, I believe the amount max around the age 14, if you do the max every single year, and the government's like matches up to that point. So then you get free money from the government basically. And you can invest into ETS, mutual funds, index funds, GICs, bonds, whatever within those accounts, the RSP, the RESP and the TFSA. And yeah, don't just leave it in a savings account. So that's just kind of a quick breakdown of those three basic accounts that Canadians have access to. So obviously with these accounts, the point is that you can put money in there and you get some kind of tax advantage or some kind of contribution from the government. So in terms of investing with these accounts, a lot of people, they'll go the routes of stocks, ETFs, index funds, mutual funds, things like that. So let's just start very broad. So I want to put ETFs, I want to put mutual funds into these investment accounts. Where do I start? How can I narrow down which funds I want to look into? There's so many out there. How can I gauge an idea of what I'm going to want to invest into? Yeah, I think uh, it, it really isn't a perfect science. There really are so many options out there. I think the best way to start is kind of narrowing down your personal investment profile or investor profile. So think about things like your time horizon. So consider your age, like where you're at in life, your risk tolerance, your comfort level with volatility and fluctuation in the market, your investment goals. Like what are you trying to accomplish with the money? Someone who's 50 years old, will probably have a different answer than someone who's 20 years old. So I think doing that is a good way to start filtering out the things that you're going to be looking for. Because if you're younger and maybe a little bit more aggressive, you may be more prone to going to more of maybe a little bit more tech heavy and more cyclical stocks or more cyclical mandates. If you're getting closer to retirement, maybe having a bigger emphasis in fixed income matters a lot to you. So I think looking, trying to figure out what you need first is a good first step. And then from there, you can kind of start filtering out the different types of investment options that would fit your profile. Okay. So if I'm looking at this then and saying, maybe I, I'm planning on buying a house two years down the road, I'm probably looking at something lower risk. Would I just 
Google low risk investments, or I guess, is there some sort of database that you can look at in terms of recommended uh, investments? Yeah, yeah. If you're doing it yourself, I think a good start, you could go to kind of a a bigger reputable company like a Vanguard website or something and kind of start filtering through different options. I'm sure, like I've never done it personally, but I'm sure they would even have people you could possibly call to ask, maybe give you some direction. I mean, working with an advisor, that's what they do and helping you figure that stuff out. So it really just depends the route you want to go. If you're doing it yourself, you're just going to have to do more research and kind of find... I guess, resources and websites that work for you because different levels of sophistication in terms of a resource will appeal to different do-it-yourself investors. And just for the easy part, like there's a lot of funds. Sometimes there's like breakdown of like, this is like a medium to low risk, Mm -hmm. medium low risk fund, or this is a low risk, this is a high risk fund. So that's like an easy way of looking at it, but obviously there's more to that. But just for new investors out there, that's kind of, there's every single fund has like a breakdown like that. And actually one thing I will mention is there are such things as target date funds, where if you are going to need the money in say 2025, you can buy a target date fund that has an allocation that will adjust to you needing to liquidate that investment to cash in the year of 2025. So that can kind of help solve that issue too. So I'm recently new to investing as our listeners have heard kind of my my story throughout the last few months. So what I did is I went on to like Vanguard and I just searched the different ETFs and I liked, I went for like higher, like a good annual return that mm-hmm. was long-term. But in saying that the history might not repeat itself. So how would you go about, like, what would you say to someone who's looking we're on the Vanguard website. And then how do you look at the financial history of a fund? What are you looking for? And is it a gamble? You know, I think a lot of people might say investing in the stock market is a gamble. Is Are we gambling with our money? Yeah. So in terms of investing, um, are you gambling with your money? I think it all depends on what you're doing and what you're investing in. So for example, something like diversification, which we talk about all the time, if you're putting all your money into just an example, if you're putting all your money into Tesla, a great company done well, but that's a, if Tesla does crash, all your money is gone down to zero because there's no diversification. So if you are invested into something like the total U S market and with a mixture exposure of international or Canadian or different companies and different like sectors. And if one area crashes, not all your money is gone. So in terms of gambling, I think, yeah, there's risk when it comes to investing. And they always tell you like, you may not get all your money back, or you may lose all your money. And that's true. But if you're talking about losing your entire portfolio, that's invested in something like the S&P 500, like that means you're saying that all 500 of the biggest company in the United States of America have crashed. So for that to happen, it would probably mean World War III is here. And at that point, who cares about money anymore? Because you're probably just worried about trying to get some food on the table. So we've been talking here about ETFs, mutual funds. I I think there's a lot of confusion among listeners even for a lot of people who are at least somewhat financially savvy about what 
is the difference between an ETF and a mutual fund. Jackson, can you explain that to us a little bit, what the difference is there? For sure. So an ETF and a mutual fund are actually quite similar in their makeup. An ETF stands for an exchange traded fund. So both of them are investment vehicles that hold baskets of securities. Okay. So they'll have differing mandates. The biggest difference between them is ETFs are usually passively managed and mutual funds are usually actively managed. Okay. So what that means is if you're buying a S&P linked index fund, oh, and I should say, so an index fund is generally in today's world, a type of ETF that tracks a given index. You can buy index mutual funds, but the ETF version is substantially more popular and much more commonly used. So in saying that, if you're buying an S&P linked ETF, you're just buying exposure to that index. The only time the companies in that ETF are going to change is if a company leaves the index or a new company enters it. Otherwise, it's just going to stay the same. The allocation can vary depending on the ETS mandate. It can be weighted to something like market cap. If you look at an actively managed mutual fund, the holdings are going to be constantly changing depending on what the fund manager is doing within the given mandate. So I guess actively versus passively managed is kind of the, the biggest difference between the two for the most part. Yeah. And a lot of people invest into ETFs just to follow the index. And so you'll never outperforming, you'll never underperforming, you'll just track it, you'll kind of follow what the S&P or the NASDAQ or whatever index you're investing in, it just kind of follow it year to year, which, you know what, that's not a bad thing, because history, historically, the US stock market, or regardless, any stock market in the world, over time, it has gone up. And if you follow it, it will go up. And so the point of why some people may go into mutual funds is maybe they're going to try and get a manager to potentially outperform the market. That's the reason, but there are some terrible managers out there too that do underperform and you do get hit also with the higher MER if they do underperform, which could be a double negative in some ways mm-hmm. too. So in essence, if you're investing in a mutual fund or an index fund, it's diversifying right there because when you buy single stocks, like you need to have so much money to buy like one of Kimberly Clark or one of Enbridge. So when you're buying an index fund, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, you're buying a whole bunch of companies in one purchase of an index fund or mutual fund. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. But if you just look up any mutual fund ETF index, anything like you could see the breakdown of the holdings. And for example, I have something that's in personally that's tracks the Russell 2000. So that's 2000 companies, the smaller companies. So if you just look down the breakdown, the holdings, you'll see a ton of companies in there. And same with something that tracks the S&P, right? So you're not just investing in one company. So you can buy one index and potentially hold hundreds of companies. So you can create your own index. Like you can buy a hundred different stocks if you want, but it's just, it just gives you such a headache trying to keep track of individual stocks and how well each company is doing and things like that. So So let's dig in a little more into if I'm investing, what am I looking for? I mean, obviously, we've talked a little bit about how you're going to look at past performance. You're going to look at how the fund has performed in past years. Is that the only indicator that you look at? Or are there other indicators that you can look at to evaluate how well a fund is performing or how you can expect it to perform or anything like that? 
Yeah. So I guess it kind of depends what, what vehicle you're looking at. With a passively managed ETF, particularly index funds, it's pretty easy because you're you're basically just, like you're just buying an index. It's really not that complicated. So in terms of like indicators when it's a good time to buy, I mean, I think you can make a pretty compelling case that any time is a good time to buy if you're buying the S&P 500. There may be times when you buy and there will be more short-term volatility, but over the long run, like markets do go up. So I think that's quite simple from that point, at least. Um, when you're looking at something that has a like maybe something that's actively managed or has a more flexible mandate that isn't just tied to companies in an index, looking th- at things like the investment philosophy and how they're deciding what companies enter the fund or the ETF. Um, if like usually ETFs that have companies that come in and out, they're factor-based. So the ETF company or people running it will have some type of algorithm or system and rhyme and reason for why companies are in the ETF. So understanding that would be useful. If you're looking at a mutual fund, fund manager tenure and their over and under performance of a benchmark is really important. So if you're looking at a mutual fund that's been in existence for say 30 years, the person running it now may have only been on it for five or 10 years. So if you're looking at a long-term track record, that's really good, but the five-year number isn't good, that could be a little bit deceiving because it's like, okay, well, really you should be evaluating based on what the person running it now has done. So that would be something to kind of look for. Otherwise, I think just kind of like the allocation of the ETF or the fund and how it fits with your investment profile would be would be paramount. And we hear the term all the time, diversified portfolio. What exactly does that mean and how can we achieve it? And also like in what ways should we diversify? Like there, you talked earlier about the tech industry and being heavy in that, or should we do a global investments? Like where do you go and how do you diversify a portfolio? So this one is very interesting because in terms of investment, diversification isn't necessarily just the stock market. So you could diversify within the stock market. Uh, perfect example, you could be in the NASDAQ, uh, which is more tech-heavy companies. And then you can also invest in something that's more into value stocks, which is more airline or companies that are been around. And so, but diversification... One thing is it, we talked about buying into ETS, buying into mutual funds. Right there, you're diversifying already because you're buying into potentially hundreds of thousands of companies. And then on top of that, I actually just got into cryptocurrency today as of recording. And so I don't know if that's actually diversifying or it's really just trying something that's different in the market, right? I hold absolutely nothing in my portfolio that represents anything that's in cryptocurrency. So just putting a little bit of my net worth into crypto, like I now diversify kind of into that. So, I mean, if crypto crashes, I'm not going to have a nightmare and lose sleep because it's, it is a small percentage of my net worth. But And then outside the stock market, you could diversify into things like real estate, right? That's still investment. So that's something that my wife and I have talked about down the road that we want to do maybe rental properties down the road. And, and so there's so many ways to invest and we've had six figure millennials like Tim and Jules, you guys know that's come on and that's multimillionaires because they have real estate investment. And some people actually never even invest in the stock market. So just investing in ETFs, index or mutual funds, you're already diversifying. But then on top of that, you could look at 
I don't know, maybe going into crypto or maybe going into real estate. And then you'll be like fully diversified that way in terms of your investments. And I think that's the best way to kind of protect yourself too. And Will, I just like to backtrack just a little bit. So you threw out a term, I believe it was value funds or value stocks. Correct. So I think that term has come up a couple times on our podcast. Would you mind just fleshing out what exactly that is? Sure. I actually first heard about value versus growth from Jackson. This guy started talking to me about value versus growth. I was like, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. And then he eventually, like I eventually did some research. And so value versus growth, value funds are funds like airline, like for example, right now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Jackson, because you're the guru that introduced me originally. Things like airlines, things like cruise lines, um, restaurants, potentially um, things that have value. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can I can take it over if you want. So value investors look to buy stocks that are undervalued in the marketplace is basically what they are. So they look for companies that have fallen out of favor. So example of that in March of last year, Canadian financials was a really popular value play. A lot of people have considered the energy sector in Canada a value play for the last handful of years because it's been out of favor for so long. So generally value stocks are lower priced than the broader market. And the idea is that they'll bounce back. So they're priced below similar companies in the same industry, and they would carry somewhat less risk than the broader market because of being undervalued. So I always see on when I'm scrolling Instagram, Wealth Simple is always advertising Air Canada stocks. Would that be considered a value stock then? I guess it would depend who you ask. I, it really just depends on who's evaluating the stock. Like people who are looking at if something is valued, they're usually looking at different multiples for a stock, like whether that's like a price earnings or whatever it may be, whatever their kind of, I guess, criterion is to consider something a value stock, because maybe someone thinks that Air Canada stock is overvalued where it is, and it's going to continue to go down. But yeah, that's why I say just kind of like generally speaking, when someone calls something a value stock, they think it's undervalued compared to where it stock price currently is. So some people may say, well, isn't anything you buy then value if you think stocks are always going to go up? That isn't necessarily the case. So with growth investors, they're seeking companies that have strong earnings growth. Okay. So that could be like a stock that's already maybe viewed as having a high share price, but they think it's going to go higher. So that's been kind of like the story of Shopify for the last year in the TSX. So they're usually higher priced than the broad market and have high earnings growth records, but they would be more volatile than a value stock would be. Yeah. So growth stock, like something like Tesla or Amazon, people still see a lot of growth in them, even though if you look at the price per unit, just even, even before they split, like you look at how high per unit or share it was like people are like, Oh my gosh, Tesla is overvalued already, but they are technically still a growth stock because people still see a lot of growth down the road with them. Yeah. That makes and, sense. and Jules to touch on what you said earlier. Yes. Like airlines are kind of have been considered value stocks this last year because the whole travel industry has just been annihilated through COVID. So there are a lot of people who are considering those airlines as value stocks for sure. So are there any specific red flags that you will tend to see when looking at a mutual fund or an ETF or anything that causes you 
to, when you look at it, just be apprehensive or very careful before making an investment in that fund? So Tim, I think there's a few things that you can look at before you start investing. And I'm sure Jackson can add a few more, but for example, something like a mutual fund, if you're looking at something with like a four or 5% MER, which I have seen, that's pretty high. So first of all, you have to outperform the market already to make it worthwhile, but you have to outperform by more than four or 5% big time to even make that fund worth it. Because four or 5% is a lot for MER. And for listeners who don't know what MER stands for, it's the management expense ratio. So what you would pay to have someone actively manage that mutual fund for you. That's a red flag for me, for sure. Another one would be if we're looking at different, I don't know, ETF mutual fund, and then there's like a horrible track record. So for example, if you're betting on a horse that's in a race and it w- loses every single time, you're not going to bet on that horse to win the race. And so same thing, if you have a mutual fund with a manager and you've seen this track record of the manager and it's underperforming the market year after year after year, even when the market's done really well, that's also a red flag for me. So those are two indicators for me, for sure. Jackson, I don't know if you can add any more to that. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, like egregious fees, like a poor track record, those are definitely red flags for sure. Those are good points. I think even when you're looking at things kind of like what happened with GameStop, like the, a false sense of excitement or lack of substantial data that supports an asset's climb to where it is, those can definitely be red flags or having people who aren't sophisticated investors telling you that something is a good investment can sometimes be an indicator that something maybe is at its peak value or or overvalued. But it really has become a tougher question to answer in the last few months here because we've seen some pretty crazy things go on in the market that maybe don't make a lot of logical sense, but are happening nonetheless. So I think the things Will said are kind of like tried and true, but I guess use common sense. Yeah. And and to add on top of that, what you said, when people are telling you to invest in things, I see as a red flag, when you go on Google and you type in, for example, stock market, just in general, and you see an article that says top three stocks to buy this or (laughs) top five stocks to invest into this month. I feel like that might be a red flag to not buy that stock because Mm -hmm. by the time you actually saw that article, the stock either already went to its high and it's on the way down or it's never going up anyways because a lot of those websites are paid by somebody to write those things to get people to invest in those things and do you guys have any kind of general guidelines in terms of mutual funds and etfs of what a good or what an average fee to be paying is i think a lot of people especially in the five community that i've heard Obviously, at the end of the day, I care about total returns the biggest. If you're giving me an average of 18% return and I'm paying 2% MER, okay, versus someone that's paying 0.04% MER getting 8%, and I'll take the 18% any day of the week. But generally speaking, obviously, the lower fees, people like lower fees better because it eats a less of your return totally. So... That's why a lot of people, no knock on mutual fund or or say ETF is any better. I think there's pros and cons for both, but a lot of ETFs, like Jackson mentioned earlier, it's passively managed. So you have, you don't have an active manager that you're paying to. So their MER, you could look at between 0.02 to 0.456%. Like 
it's quite low in terms of ETS. And then mutual fund, I think usually we're looking at one to two percent for MER. If uh, that's good. yeah, I would say like anything below, let's say two and a half, could be yeah. justifiable. I think once you start getting over that, I start looking at it a little bit closer. And like, I just want to kind of maybe simplify this for some of our listeners, because some of us are like, let's say we are following Dave Ramsey's steps. We're on like baby step three. We just finished that. Okay. Now it's time to invest baby step four, two options, right? Contact someone like Jackson or do it on our, on our own. Right. How would someone go about starting? Like, just say, like, let's just do it. We always say in this podcast, like, there's no better time than now. If you, Jackson or Will, were, like, going to say to somebody, okay, here are the three steps to do to get started, what would those three steps be? I guess it depends what route you're taking. If you're doing it yourself, I would probably do some research on different self-directed platforms and maybe ask around to friends and family that I know have have maybe went that route and see what they have to say. Uh, they could provide some helpful insight. And then obviously like, yeah, reading reviews online on different brokerages would be good. And once you find something you like, go set up an account. I think it can really be that easy. It's not hard to set up an investment account somewhere. So if you're doing it the self-directed way, you basically just got to pick a platform and go. In terms of finding an advisor, that can be a little bit tougher. So I would say, again, asking around friends and family for references is probably good because that can give you a bit of a character reference. And if the person's any good, interview advisors, like go around, talk to multiple people. Don't go with the first person you talk to play the field a little bit, see what's out there. If you don't like anyone, go do it yourself. If there's someone you like and get along with and think is trustworthy and will do a good job, give them a go. And I guess you can kind of play it by ear from there if it's worth it. I think speaking from a general public point of view, most people don't care about investments and the people who invest don't care about investments. I have friends who invest and they don't look at their accounts at all or ever. And they don't know if I ask them, oh, what mutual fund or what ETFs or what index fund are you in? They have no clue. They just like, ah, we we are in something and it's doing something and no idea what it is. And so for the majority of people in general, like I think we are out of the norm where mm-hmm. we actually look into things and like I have Yahoo Finance as like one of my favorite pages. Like that's kind of like out of the norm. So I think the general public for you to do DIY. Yeah. There's a lot of simple things out there. Like you could easily Google top ETFs in the TSX and find something, but most people don't even know where to start. Like TSX. I don't even know if people understand what TS is the Toronto stock exchange. So when you write the top ETF in the TSX, it's like the top ETF in the Canadian stock market in the Canadian dollar, basically sense. And so like, I do think that the reason people do go to advisors is because they want someone to do it for them too. But also like for me, I have DIY on my side, but I also have Jackson because it's someone that's there that you can bounce ideas off of and just, just talk with. So you don't make some crazy decisions, like sell all your stuff and put it into crypto or something like that. But yeah, so I do, I think that's, that's true though. What we're saying is that uh, most people just don't care about investments too much. So to do a DIY, you, you, I feel like you need to 
kind of know what you're doing and not be an emotional investor, which I think a big part of your job, Jackson, is, is during the downturn of last year, I'm sure you were talking to some clients be like, hey, now's not the time to sell when people are like freaking out and trying to sell. Whereas DIY, if you got nobody to talk to there, you might just like, oh, well, I'm down 20% time to sell. So I don't go down 30%. And that's literally the worst time to sell. So. Mm-hmm. And Jackson, can you actually just speak a little to that being an emotional investor and what that means and why it's a bad thing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, people have an emotional connection to their money. Like you work hard to save and and build any type of substantial amount up. So when you see it fluctuating, it plays with your emotions. Uh, I think that that's human, right? You people are kind of greedy and they always want it to go up, but that's just not the reality. So when you see something going down and you're hearing from other people in your life or on BNN in the news that we're hitting all time lows in the last five years and the market may never recover and whatever else the media may put out there and say, and have in big red headlines, it's easy to get scared for sure. Like it, um, they do a good job of, of scaring people off. So, I mean, emotion definitely comes into it. It, it plays a huge role in investing and taking emotion out of it is one of the best things you can do because if you can take a step back and look at things from a subjective basis and just look, okay, so from 2000 to 2020, the stock market went from here to here or the S&P 500 went from here to here. Now it's down here. Do I think it's going to continue to go down for forever or do I think it will ever come back up? Probably going to come back up, right? So in saying that, people can be very short-sighted and it's very easy to make those mistakes. All you have to do is have flaps in judgment and hit sell and it can be done. So avoiding those mistakes is huge. Like it can erase massive amounts of returns over time by making one bad decision in a bear market. Like it's actually quite remarkable if you look up uh, studies and research that have been done on it. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I love that you point out that there's so much emotion in investing. And by hiring a financial advisor, let's just talk about that. You're not actually hiring like out of pocket, right? It's coming from your investment return. Am I correct, Jackson? So people aren't going to go and and, like interview someone and say, yes, like I want to hire you and you're on like $100 a month or anything like that. Like there's no out of pocket cost to anybody. Yeah. So like, obviously you're paying for advice, like advisors don't work for free, but like, if you went in to go interview advisors, you're not going to have to worry about getting invoiced like 500 bucks per meeting or something. Advisors are paid based on the assets they manage. So a general kind of rule of thumb is that they make 1% of the assets that they manage in a year. So usually that's paid monthly. So advisors make roughly one twelfth of a percent of the assets that they manage. So that's usually just deducted right out at source from the account. So you don't have to cut a check to the advisor or pay an invoice or anything. It'll just, it'll be kind of baked into everything and and taken right out of the account. And Will, I think everybody is kind of wondering a little bit at this point. And you've mentioned that you've looked a little bit into crypto. You said that actually today you just decided to buy into cryptocurrency. And I think our listeners would just kind of love to hear your thoughts on crypto. If you have any recommendations on how you should be investing in crypto or what, how much of your portfolio it should make up. 
So I want to change that wording, investing into crypto. I feel like I'm more gambling into crypto. Um, uh, <laughs> obviously, everyone wishes they started like five years ago, but what do you know? The reason I decided to throw some into crypto is just for diversification. Um, simply what I talked about earlier. I don't know what the future of crypto is. I do know that the companies like PayPal, even Morgan Stanley, I believe the bank in the US are taking a crypto now, a Bitcoin. Um, I know Tesla accepts uh, crypto as payments. And so I, I do know the future is headed somewhat towards that direction. I don't know how much it will go toward that direction. I. What I would say to people is invest in crypto, invest in an amount that you feel comfortable that it will go to zero and you won't lose sleep. And so whether that's $100, $200, $10,000, whatever, as long as you feel okay, if it one day goes to zero and you're okay with it, then go ahead. And so in terms of percentages, Tim, for me, it only makes up around 1.5, 1.6% of my whole portfolio. So it's not a massive amount of my total net worth, but it's, it's just something that's there that it has the potential to do well down the road. And if it does, then it does. And if it doesn't, then it was just a experiment and a way to diversify kind of. So for me personally, I have some now in Bitcoin and I have some in Ethereum. So I have an old core who keeps telling me to put into XRP, but I don't know if I should too, but I don't think I will put any more, much more into cryptocurrency and I'm just going to ride it out and see maybe 10 years from now. Maybe if Ethereum turns into Bitcoin level, then I'll be laughing at that point. So we'll see what happens, but uh, it's just, it's just kind of view it as fun money that you're okay with gambling if it goes to zero. And I do think the upside is huge and potentially in cryptocurrency. Well, and like you're, you're still young, you're doing well with your money. So to have that little bit of gamble, I think is okay, right? You've evaluated your risks. You have a very small portion in it yeah. and you enjoy it. You enjoy investing and it's kind of like jumping on a roller coaster. <laughs> you're, there's yeah. going to be ups and downs, but end of the day, you're going to have fun, right? Like, I know that sounds weird with investing, but like, it's not like you're, 60 years old and you're like, Oh my gosh, I have no money. I got to start now. Like you can afford to have a few gambles here and there. Yeah. And I, I, I do feel like I'm literally like getting dropped off at the top of the roller coaster already at the top of the hill. I hope it's not going down. I hope it <laughs> continues to go up, but who knows? Like I remember in December this past year when Bitcoin was, I don't know, 30, $40,000 a coin. And everyone was like, Oh man, it's overvalued, overvalued. And then next thing you know january comes and it just went straight up and continue going up and now what is it at now like 60 70 thousand dollars a coin it, it keeps fluctuating but i don't know what the future holds some people think it'll be 100 200 a million dollar coin who knows but it's just like if i have a little bit in there i could see the potential down the road so it's just we'll we'll see it's a, just an experiment kind of it's thing. a fun ride <laughs> yeah exactly a scary yeah. one Exactly. Um, do you guys have any good resources that you could recommend to our listeners, like books, uh, websites, podcasts, um, anything on this stuff? Yeah, a couple blogs I read regularly are called The Irrelevant Investor and Their Reform Broker. Um, I really like both of those. And a really good podcast that I listen to, it's called Animal Spirits. 
And the financial classroom. And the financial classroom, of course. I thought that one without saying. And for me, I listen to all things FI and read a lot of FI blogs. And so I think in terms of like good ETFs, uh, good investment strategy, I feel like the FI community has that. So a few of them, like, for example, Canadian version, there's the Explore FI podcast. Uh, US, there's the Choose FI. And then there's so many blogs online, like Mr. Money Mustache has his own blog too. That's like massive. And then they have like a lot of different funds you can invest in or advice for, for people who have a long time horizon who wants to achieve FI. So that's things that I like. And also there's The Simple Path to Wealth um, by J.L. Collins. That's a great book. So if you are interested in investing or want to get started on that kind of thing, go find those resources. And you, if you just want to get started investing and you know nothing about investment, you don't care, go find an advisor and talk to somebody and get started regardless. So you'll be better off. Yeah. I think no matter what, no excuses, right? Like, you know, we preach this time and time again, where it's time in the market. So if you're listening to this and you've tuned out or it's like way over your head, don't think investing isn't for you. It still is for you. It's just doing it DIY is not for you. So find an investor, like Jackson said, interview a whole bunch. Don't hire the first one. Call Jackson. He's great. Shameless <laughs> plug. <laughs> but don't don't say investing's not for you because it's invaluable. So, you know, just go ahead and do it. Jackson, this has been great, but we're going to go into a game now. So it's called Break the Piggy Bank. So Will and I both know that you are a avid Lakers fan. So (laughs) break the piggy bank. You break it open. You have as much money as you want in there. You have filled it with billion dollar bills. And basically you can take that money out. You get to choose five basketball games that the Lakers are playing against. You get courtside seats. Which five teams are you watching the Lakers play? Historical teams too, or just current teams? Just, uh, just current teams. Okay. Current teams. Yeah. And they're all team. Obviously they would win all five games. So yeah, I would like <laughs> to see them beat the Celtics because that's my brother's favorite team. I would like to see them beat the Raptors because that's Canada's team. Oh my gosh! Uh, you could just and that's Will's podcast. team. So obviously that's a that's a win win. Oh gosh! I do not like the Clippers. I would love to see them beat them. Well, Courtside, that'd be awesome. <laughs> and let's go Bucks in 76ers. No Nets, eh? No. Really? Yeah. Cool. That is those are five good picks, except for the Raptors. That is just unreal. <laughs> so four good picks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So cool. Thanks for playing Break the Piggy Bank, Jackson. Oh. Hey, a question for you guys. If you had a piggy bank filled with billion dollar bills and could do anything you want, what would be your first purchase? Uh, a yacht. Okay. And then an island. I would have an island and a yacht. A yacht to take you to your island? Exactly. There you go. You're thinking. I didn't have to think hard on that one. (laughs) Will would just buy billions dollars worth of crypto. I'm actually (laughs) thinking, I was like, I would put a billion dollar into a something like a VUN, which is like a... Of course he would invest it. And and think about... (laughs) The, well, the that wasn't the point return. of the question. You got to pick something different. Okay. Um, <laughs> billion dollar. He's such an investment nerd. You know what? I will probably move to, I'll probably buy a nice house by the beach on uh, Victoria Island. 
in BC. So, and uh, live right there because that would be that would be pretty sweet. So there you go. That's a better answer, Tim. Yeah, I think I'd buy a house, not necessarily Victoria Island, but where Regina. <laughs> yeah i don't know regina since i already have a job here maybe i don't know although you won't t- need a job after if you, you have a have billion dollars dollars do you want to buy an island okay so i get island? to i get to keep the rest of the billions of dollars after i buy something tim tim if you put your billion dollar into a high interest savings account at the bank making 0.05 percent interest you would make more from that than your salary at your job still <laughs> see i wasn't sure if the question was meant that i had money left over oh like a one-time purchase because no i kind of mean just you're endlessly rich now for the rest of your life okay (laughs) i would look at probably like buying a house down in like california maybe florida there you go jackson you i'd buy the edmonton oilers franchise oh see that's an investment right there that's a good investment yeah Maybe I could buy the Ottawa Senators and give them some actual decent is, ownership. Hold, hold on. Sorry. Sorry. This is off topic for listeners who don't care about sports, but are they worth under a billion? I know basketball teams are basically all worth over a billion dollars. That's a good easily. question, actually. So, because technically, if you only have a billion, you probably can't buy it if they're worth over that. I don't know. Well, I think the piggy bank was filled with several billion dollar bills. Is You guys all this, like, I'm just going to sit on my island and, like, float from place to place on my yacht. You guys can have all your sports teams and your houses on island. <laughs> Senators are worth 430 million U.S. So you can oh, buy them. Totally yeah. affordable. Oh, well, so they're a lot less than NBA teams, eh? Oh, Crazy. yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Wow. Okay, cool. Well, that's awesome. Thanks for asking that, Jackson. It's cool to see where everyone is. So mm-hmm. um, that means I get court side or ice side, whatever they call in hockey. Seat. Yeah, rink side. Rink side. I don't even seats. know if that's a thing, but it is now. With you. And then Jules, I get to just visit you and on your island while you float around. Cool. You get to take a yacht out to our island. Yeah, and I'll get to visit him, but I can't see him because he's working. So, <laughs> and you'll never want to go to any games because the senators suck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Well, thank you so much, Jackson, for coming on today. And I know that this advice and this information will just be really, really helpful for our listeners. And yeah, it's always great having you on the show, especially as somebody that we know and, you know, who I guess both myself and Will work closely with, you know, with our investments, somebody that we trust with our money. And yeah, thank you so much for being willing to share your knowledge. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was fun. Yeah, thank you so much, Jackson. And again, Will, for answering all these questions. And I, I hope it really did add value to our listeners for people who are, you know, have questions about investments and the stock market. Yeah, so for people out there, I think, like Jackson said last time, the best time to invest was yesterday. And so I hope if you don't take anything away from this podcast, this episode, the only thing you can take away is that you need to get started. The earlier you start, the earlier compound interest starts to take over. And if you just go on Google right now and type in compound interest and just go to type in maybe 8% annual return and then do like 30 years and then even just do 25 to 30 years and see how much difference the last five years makes um, with compound interest. And if that doesn't get you to start investing, I don't know what will. So 
the earlier you start, the better. So yeah, start investing. And if you don't know where to start, there's lots of resources out there. And like we said, if you are still stuck, go find an advisor and talk to somebody. Um, there's always ways that you can look into things and get help from. So other than that, it and was it was just to jump in there, Jackson, you can help anybody across Canada. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So where can people find you? The website, santequants.com. Last name is Brayling. So Jackson yeah. Brayling. If people are interested, they can always reach out to you guys directly and you can kind of forward yeah. them my info. Definitely. That's easier. Yeah. Other than that, Jackson, thanks for coming on. It was fun answering questions with you. It was kind of weird having Jules and Tim interview me, but that was awesome. I enjoyed it. And it's always fun talking to you. And yeah, until next time. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more episodes and financial tips, check out our Facebook page, The Financial Classroom. And if you like this podcast, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review on our various podcast platforms. Later.